welcome back to Two Peas in a Podcast, where we are down to one pea, your host, Laura Morrell. A podcast where no conversation is off topic. Welcome back to Two Peas in a Podcast, and I am so excited for this episode because this was actually like almost a message from the universe how we met. We were both at a cafe. I was with my girlfriend talking about, you know, how amazing my clients were and how much I refer out to, you know, nutritionists and naturopaths. And little did I know this beautiful woman next to me who was with her gorgeous little five-year-old son, Reggie, um, was a qualified naturopath. And she literally just said, I've been, I heard your conversation and she told me that she's a holistic sleep consultant. And I was like, I love you because it just aligns with everything we are on this podcast and everything we do in the business. So before we begin though, and I introduce her, I just wanted to mention a little trigger warning as we will be chatting a lot about children and babies, and there will be a mention of losing children, and that can be really hard. So I always like to make sure when we do have these conversations, just know if you are triggered by this conversation, please either have a support person with you or maybe skip this episode if you do find it too triggering. We are always here to offer support and education. So let's get into it. Please help me welcome Georgina Winbank. Welcome. Thank you so much. What a great way that we met. What a great story. It takes me back. It was not that long ago, only a couple a month ago, maybe. It was. And the funny thing is, I, I swear we need to be sponsored by the alleyway because the amount of times I mentioned them in a podcast, they are a local coffee shop. I met so many of my beautiful clients from there and yeah, such a beautiful cafe. Honestly, we just meet so many locals. So shout out to the alleyway. Um, great, great, great cafe. And I'm so glad we met too. I was I was eavesdropping because I was obviously my little one was playing and we were eating and I was <laughs> eavesdropping and I was hearing thyroid testing and the word thyroid and I was I could hear some very familiar terms so I thought this girl's either a naturopath or a nutritionist I couldn't quite figure out where you sat so and then obviously as we were leaving I just because my son was so keen to speak to you he's a really personable little fella and he was really kept looking at you wanting to engage so he um, really did yeah. And I find that so, so beautiful. Before we get into anything, like he is the most sociable little five-year-old, such a personable little thing. And I think that's such a credit to you as a mum as well for, for being able to give that time to teach him those skills and those, you know, milestones. He was such a gorgeous little thing. And we got to have, I think it was his birthday at the time. Yeah, it was coming up. So for his that's birthday, right. yeah, he's just turned five. Yeah, there you go. Well, he's been like that the whole time. He's been a chatterbox. He he started uttering words at nine months old. Yep. So he has been a real little chatterbox. And that means a lot what you say because, as we'll find out, it has been very much just me and my husband raising him all while both running our own businesses. So that means a lot for you to say that. Amazing. Well, we're so glad to have you here today. Um, Georgina, through her own experience having children, but also because she has experienced lack of sleep and quality sleep as well, she understands like the impacts of sleep issue and how this translates into day-to-day life. She's a holistic sleep consultant and a qualified naturopath. And what a freaking magical combination that is, let me tell you. But she also has an incredible wealth of knowledge and helps with strategies for families to meet their sleep goals specific to them, but is also so driven to help young children to help their developmental needs. But she is so much more than that. And I'm not going to do it justice by giving this introduction. So let's flick over to Georgina and she can tell us a little bit more about who she is and what she does. Well, that is, you are right. So I'm a qualified naturopath and a holistic sleep consultant. And my business is the Holistic Sleep Project. I have a membership, which I know we'll talk about later. I've just released a course and I also help families one-on-one internationally, in fact. So that's what I do professionally. My background is in clinic as a naturopath. And I was also in sales on the road as a qualified naturopath, which I absolutely loved. But it was a very intense role, as most sales roles are. And I, in that journey, I, I, I got married and all that kind of thing. And I was always so incredibly maternal, so incredibly maternal. My mother was such a beautiful mother. And I very much had such great family, family values growing up. So 
I met my husband after a while we got pregnant and we were so excited but that I lost that baby and maybe we'll talk about that later but I lost that baby in a really sort of tragic kind of horrible way and from that I really felt like if I was going to conceive another baby I had to be less stressed (laughs) so I left that job I went back I went into private practice again and my sleep for me that is my health Achilles heel we all have something I think as again we'll talk about I'm sure but naturopathy and the way that that works is always something which is an Achilles heel for a lot of people it's anxiety depression might be a thyroid condition gut issues For me, it's my sleep. I am such a light sleeper. I wake frequently. It takes me a long time to get back to sleep. It's a real problem. I've seen every man and his dog about it. I'm working on it. But that, for me, really meant that because I didn't have any family support, my mother died when I was actually pregnant with Reggie and my father had died a few years before. Mm -hmm. So I had no one, just my husband. He went back to his business a couple of weeks in. I actually hadn't been around children. I never had, I have one older brother, but I never had cousins. I never had all my girlfriends from school was, had had babies a little bit before me, but I really had no reference point except my own childhood and how amazing and active my parents were. So I read a lot. I researched a lot. I asked a lot of questions of all my fellow naturopaths and how their birth was and everything like that and how the sleep was. And I really felt like in order to, for me to get through this early stage, I had to have Reggie's sleep sorted from day one because I know that I'm such a terrible sleep. I have to have this child sleeping age appropriately. So I went on a bit of a, I started work early with him and I set in some foundations from five weeks old by nine weeks. He was organically sleeping through. I still breastfed till he was a year old, but organically he was sleeping through. And that enabled me to rest when I needed to rest, but it also enabled me to start this business because I'm so passionate about enjoying parenthood to the absolute max. But to do that, we have to be as well rested as we can be. And I was still knackered. I was still exhausted, even being, having a bit of sleep and having a child who was a really great sleeper, I was still exhausted. So for those families that perhaps haven't learned about sleep, or these are things that we are not taught when we have babies, So I really wanted to have that. And that was my self-preservation tool, knowing that when I put him down for a nap, he would sleep and I would be able to get through until my husband got home. So I started this business when he was on one nap because I had a solid two hours of studying and I studied through a holistic sleep consultancy course in America because that's the only one that I could find that was holistically based. And I found over the years that that mix of naturopathy is just dynamite. Mm. It's Um, I don't think people fully understand and I hope that this chat with this podcast is one way that families will understand how amazing that mix is because when I meet someone like you and they say, oh, my gosh, that's amazing, a lot of people maybe don't understand how great it is. So that's how the business started. That's a little bit about me and I'm sure we'll learn a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's 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 a lack of education and awareness in today's society that there are services like yourself available because we do live in, you know, a fast-paced, quick solution type mentality. So it can be, you know, and, and we face this on a daily um, basis when it, with my business as well because we are holistic, which means we marry up everything that is in your life and it can take time. It means putting in effort and it can be hard work. And I think sometimes it is that lack of awareness that these things can be done naturally. So I'm so glad you're here to be providing this, I guess, awareness and education that there is a way, there is a possibility to improve your sleep, to improve your children's sleep. And one thing I love that you said was your your Achilles heel was sleep. And I think what's really important to understand is everybody has their own version of hard and knowing what that is, but being kind to yourself um, can be really important because just knowing that this is my hard, this is my challenge and I'm going to overcome it. And just having that positive spin on it can be really beneficial. So a couple of things that you said that really, really stood out to me, Um, but let's dive into some questions. When you talk about sort of holistic sleep consulting, what actually is that so how would you define that word sort of holistic so holistic in itself means many parts that make up a whole that's what it means so it means 
So to make up a solution, I guess, there are many, many elements to that. So if we look at it from a natu naturopathic perspective, the philosophy and the ethos there is that we don't just treat symptoms, we treat the cause. So let's just say that someone came in back when I was in private practice with a skin condition, then we don't just put, and I used to work at a herbal dispensary actually back in the day, this is one of my first jobs as a naturopath was working in a herbal dispensary, which is the greatest job. And people would come in for skin conditions and say, I've got acne, what can I do? What can I, what, what cream can I have? And, and I would think that's great, but that's not going to solve your acne. Mm -hmm. You and I know that that needs to come from gut integrity. It needs to come from the food triggers they might be having. It needs to come from stress. So many factors combine to make a skin condition. The same applies for depression. Often people think that, I don't know what people think, whether they think it's something wrong with them, you know, there was a particular event that may have triggered it, but it's so much more than that. There's an inflammatory component to depression. There's uh, cofactors. So are they having the right nutrients in order to have the right cofactors to develop the right neurotransmitters? It's very, very complex. So sleep, I see the same. So there are key elements that make up child age-appropriate sleep and knowing that I also look after children till about three and a half, so from birth till about three and a half years old. And those things, and that is based on naturopathy. So even though there may be, you know, people out there that talk about being holistic, they may not have the background that I have. Well, I actually know that no one else has the background that I have Very in specific. terms of, yeah, knowing that health science background. I know red flags when I see them. I know how to refer on. So I have such a huge network of osteopaths, chiropractors, kinesiologists. Of course, most people usually see a ped, whatever it is. So I have all these extra um, elements that make me quite knowledgeable in that sense. And then when it comes to sleep itself, we look at the environment. Yes, we look at age-appropriate routines, but for your child, not for every 10-month-old that I meet, every child's sleep needs are completely different. And because I'm a naturopath, I can look at the relationship with feeding and the food, food content. So the relationship between milk feeds, but also the relationship between solids. But what's the content of the solids? Because I'm obviously a qualified nutritionist as well. So all these, and then the other main one is emotional connection to parents, which we kind of spoke off, off air just a little bit before. So making sure that we are really connected to our little ones and also that they're connected to their sleep space, which is often a big missing element. So all these things, and there's obviously little micro details within all the things that I've mentioned, but I really see these two as so interconnected. They work so beautifully together. And the other thing that I do want to mention is sometimes people use the term holistic sleep consulting and what they're meaning is um, gentle, but in fact, it doesn't necessarily mean that. I feel like holistic can mean, and like what you were just talking about, long-term. So sleep work can be hard. You have to put in the work. You have to put in the work from where you are now with your baby waking 11 times a night to a place that you can put them down and they go to sleep really age appropriately in, you know, between in 10 to 20 minutes, which is really, really normal. But you have to get from there to there and you have to work hard to get there and put in the effort. And what I'm looking for my families is long-term. Yeah. You know, I could come in and come into the house and maybe I could be there the first night and settle your baby and your baby may go to sleep. But what do you do the next night? What do you do a week after that? You, I'm really about, and this is also the naturopathy model, empowering people about their health rather than, I guess, a mainstream medical model is more about symptomatic, so maybe giving a medication rather than maybe talking about how they got to that place or how they can manage their condition, more so they might just give a symptomatic medication as an example. With what I do as well, I want people to have the knowledge feel empowered about the next time a sleep challenge comes up because the thing about sleep is it's really ever-changing. You don't just teach a child to sleep and then they're done. It constantly changes because there's regressions, there's teething, there's travel, there's illness, there's starting childcare. So I want to empower my families to have the tools and have the strategies and the knowledge to get over the next thing that happens because there always is one. Absolutely. Even if we look at our own sleep, 
there are so many variable like variabilities and factors into our own sleep, let alone trying to help a young one that you're trying to raise. So I think, you know, it's it's even hard for us women to and men too, but to understand our own sleep cycles, let alone a developing child. Um, part of that, part of that is because they're so sensitive to their environment. They were in the womb for nine months. It was dark, it was warm, it was a bit loud. And then they're coming out to an environment where it's overstimulating. They're not, you know, attached to you. Sometimes they are, depending on the, the parents and the child. But it's, 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 they're so sensitive to their environment. We need to be aware of that. Plus, they're very connected to their parents, babies. And they are very sensory and they pick up on, you know, scents and all that sort of thing. So I guess even more so than us, they're really, yeah, sensitive to their environment and sensory related. Absolutely. And one thing you did mention early on when you're talking about your story was, and I'm so sorry to hear that you went through so much loss during such a pivotal time of your life. And I can, like, I'm, I'm not a mum, and I always put a disclaimer that I try and not come across as naive to the, um, the stress of being a mum, because when you're not a mum, it's hard to understand that. So I try and not come across as naive or, you know, try and word the questions right. But obviously you went through quite a traumatic time, um, you know, during those milestone developments for you going through pregnancy. And I'm sure that was one of the most excruciating, hardest times of your life. And, you know, I I did want to touch on that if you're comfortable, because I know there's a lot of women who do feel somewhat alone when they're becoming a mum, there's no rule book, there's no guidebook, and not all of us are lucky enough to to have parents and friends and that have gone through it to give us that guidance. So I know you mentioned some of the resources, but how did you really navigate through that? Through losing my mum in pregnancy? Yeah. I think, well, firstly, I had lost my dad uh, a few years before. That was my first example of grief, and I was just, I was about 29 or 30 when I lost him. And I was so close to my father and he was such a phenomenal man. You wouldn't get a more proactive dad than my dad. And I just, that threw me. I was working full-time in a sales role. I didn't understand why. I mean, I've already got a very, I'm an anxious predisposition, but that through my anxiety, I was just, I was foggy in the brain. It's a very technical role to be a naturopath, particularly in sales. And I just couldn't think, which is a very grief thing, a very common in grief. So that was the first grief. And then the second grief was losing our first baby. And that also was just so horrific because I'd never been pregnant before. Mm. I think I was uh, 35 and we were so excited to have this baby. It took us about six months to conceive. We did acupuncture because to me, it's not just about having a baby. It's about having a healthy baby Mm. because that's, again, a naturopathy philosophy is it's about being well and healthy and not just conceiving but carrying that baby to full term and everything and we were absolutely ecstatic and we were so thrilled and we were devastated when we found out at 13 weeks that he had a major genetic condition Mm -hmm. I just I would never have thought that that would happen to me and I guess that's you know I'm not sounding arrogant but because we had done all that preconception work which is what naturopaths usually advise to do to know that that had happened I just I almost am still in shock about it I can't understand how that happened to us and then we had to make this most impossible decision about what to do about that pregnancy now the problem with all of this is that it happened incredibly quickly Mm -hmm. so we found out I think at two o'clock on the Monday that this could be a possibility and then we had to have an amniocentesis, whereas they put a needle into your fluid, I think, in your, I don't even really know, because I was so traumatised. And then they find out and then they confirm, but we didn't find out until Wednesday, 5 o'clock. And the paediatrician, there was no genetic counselling, which is actually, I don't think that happens now because I've been in a few support groups and I think that there is usually genetic counselling. And we were just sort of left kind of, we didn't even really have time to discuss it. It was it just the whole way it happened was not the way it should have happened, I guess. So that was incredibly difficult and the decision, I mean, it's not a decision. That's It's, you know, it was just terrific. So then when we had, so then we, you know, waited and obviously we weren't ready and that, that was, I was a mess with that. You know, I sat on the couch for six weeks over summer. I'm not a person that ever 
with my dad. I think I had two days off when he died mm-hmm. with my mum or none. I don't have, I just get on with it. And yes, it comes up at the most infrequent times that you would expect grief, but that threw me. And it was because it was, I was also hormonal. Like it was hormonal. It was, I was only 13 weeks pregnant and it was full of hormones. So, and the shock. So then anyway, we, went back to TCM and all that sort of thing, another six months and we were pregnant with Reggie. So when my mum died, I was 13 weeks pregnant with Reggie. To me, it was the most bizarre thing because I had such elation and then I was so grief-stricken. It's You can have joy and grief at the same time in my experience. I remember sitting on the beach. I'm from the peninsula. I remember sitting on the beach on the peninsula and looking at this 16-week pregnant baby and thinking, I'm so happy but where's my mum? This is so bizarre. So I think I actually shelved my grief with my about my mum and I think I focused on this baby so much because I'd already lost a son mm-hmm. and now I had another son to look after. And as it was, I sort of stopped in clinic at about 30 weeks pregnant, which is very early, and I was really happy too because I wanted to enjoy this pregnancy as much as possible. I was glowing. I you know, was 37 and I was finally pregnant and I had an amazing pregnant pregnancy, an incredible birth because of all the things that I put into place, private midwife, calm birth, acupuncture, I really another sort of in making all those decisions that were more empowering than perhaps more passive Um, and in the end I lost two more babies so I'm really really glad that I just focused on him and enjoyed every step of the way I think the grief with my mum and dad and other babies as well is comes up daily and wasn't necessarily there always there it's when I see a mother and a woman my age and the baby it's like a dagger in the heart. When I see a father and then a woman my age and a baby, when I see a woman with a toddler, and this really used to affect me, but I've done a lot of work on this, a toddler and a baby at the park, mm-hmm. I would just be so angry and so incredibly jealous, which is, I think, really valid. Um, so those, those, this happens to me all the time. And I think I've come a long way through all of that, but then there's also be... And particularly, I've got to say, working with the women that I work with, everybody that I've worked with, one-on-one in sleep, they all have a massive support network. They have their parents. They have childcare. I had none of that because my husband, his his father died um, prior and his mum's in a home with Alzheimer's, late-stage Alzheimer's. So we've never had any grandparents for Reggie. We don't have any extended family um, that are really present in his life except for my husband's sister. I've got a brother as well, but um, we have done it all on our own and I've done it all through research. Because I am an anxious person, I took the approach of of researching sleep and researching and thinking about what my parents said and think, think, yes, okay, I like that, but then I didn't like that, so I'm going to do that a bit my way. So I think rather than feeling disempowered about it all, which would have been so easy to do, I actually took control probably based on anxiety and that has worked for me to be more empowered and probably tie myself up in knots you know particularly around his sleep which probably wasn't necessary but that made me feel sort of more empowered you're incredible and just to hear your story the strength you have to have been able to navigate through all those different um, pivotal times of your life dealing with grief and joy and happiness and all of the above, like just is, is credit to you. And I'm sure that comes across as such an inspiring, inspiring story to so many women. So we're so grateful for you to just have be in this space to just share your story, because like anything, if you do hold that trauma that you've been through, it is hard to talk about because you're going through it again you're reliving emotions so we always always appreciate when someone shares their story so thank you and I am do you feel going through all of that really just was the um, pivotal alignment of that holistic health because you were able to navigate through the emotions and health and obviously your background as a naturopath combining everything as you said the emotional health of someone was that a real moment where you're like yeah this is what I want to do like I want to create a business that is so holistic and takes into consideration women's emotions because sometimes from not just my experience but hearing women's experience sometimes the emotional 
side can be not spoken about. It's more like, well, these are your symptoms. This is your lifestyle, but they're not really speaking about their emotions. Well, a couple of things on that. Firstly, I feel like this has been a part of me, a holistic way for a long time because my, well, firstly, I started studying naturopathy at about 23, but my parents both got sick at, when I was 26 with very different, horrific, long-term conditions which are obviously going to be fatal but I both led them and my dad never took he took a Panadol once a year we had a we had a farm as well as living by the beach he had veggies we had sheep that we would you know kill and eat he whereas my mother was more poly polypharmacy you know she used to live for medication but also she also had a naturopath and a homeopath and she also introduced that to me as well so I've have I've lived like this way in some way, I think since I was little, and then also having that real desire to be a naturopath and nutrition and everything like that. Um, so it's always been part of it and was always going to have a career in it. Mm-hmm. I think that you're right when it comes to women, I would say 99% of the women I speak to on their initial consultation have had traumatic births. Mm-hmm. And that plays a role in how they react to their babies. It plays a role in how they first get through those early months because most women, um, they want, they cannot leave their babies. Like if they've had a traumatic birth, they absolutely cannot leave their babies and they want to be near them and it's, it's really hard for them to leave. Whereas I was actually the opposite. My trauma in pregnancy meant that I needed to put him down so I could go and have a moment to myself. If I, for example, co-slept for naps as well, I would not have got a moment to myself. And I think given where I was, I needed that space. So trauma can really affect people very differently and it can impact the way. So for some people, crying in particular can be incredibly triggering, um, whereas others may not so. So I think that I am a deep person and I have been through, even before all this stuff, a lot of things that have made me incredibly resilient. My parents were incredibly resilient. They went through all sorts of struggles and challenges, health, etc. And I think that I want to support parents and, and make sure that they are looking after themselves so that they can enjoy this journey as much as possible. If I can do it with zero help but my husband, then we can all do it. We just have to prioritise ourselves and our sleep and our little one's sleep. Yeah, and thank God we have you here now running this business to get this education. So we've spoken, you know, about more of the holistic approach. What would you say the main difference is between like a typical sleep consultant and a holistic sleep consultant? So who would you recommend would like fit the criteria of someone who wants to go down that route of, of holistic Well, often the women that I and the families, because usually the women that I chat with, often dads as well, they have an understanding. So they might go to a chiro, they might go to an osteo. They understand that health is really, really important in their world and I guess they're open-minded to that. So they've usually got some sort of, like the other day I had a client who was four months old and the baby was under the care of a naturopath, a dietitian actually, a naturopath, a dietitian, a peed, excuse me, and possibly a chiro, a body work as well, chiro, osteo. So that might be one category. I guess the other thing is they understand that this is not a quick fix because, say, for example, if we talk about sleep school, a lot of people go to sleep school and they think that that would be good for them and it definitely works for some people. I don't see that as a holistic model because it's often, sometimes it teaches really good settling skills, but it doesn't talk about any of the things that I've mentioned. It doesn't talk about the environment. It doesn't talk about how the mother feels. Often there's people in there settling the baby, but doesn't the mother need to know how to settle the baby? It's great that you go and have two nights sleep somewhere because often it's the staff settling the baby, but doesn't the mother want to feel empowered and go home and be able to settle her own baby and know what the cries mean? So that, that to me is not a holistic model. Um, so I want to, yeah, they might look at all of it and they understand it's a long-term approach. They understand that sleep's not going to happen on night one. We're going to do it gradually. The way I work is really gradually and slowly setting up all these elements. And then at the end of it, when we're ready, then we'll be able to put down the baby and um, 
it will be yeah. fine. And I, I think that's even empowering for women to hear that difference because, again, if, if someone Googles a sleep school, then they're not aware of all the things that they may be missing that they actually need. So sometimes it can be important to hear this information to know what do you act, what's actually going to benefit you. So thank you so much for clarifying that. Um, diving into a little bit about babies and toddlers now, um, and I'm only going to go off assumptions. I don't specialize in children's and babies, but like adults, we have a circadian rhythm. Do babies and toddlers have a set circadian rhythm? And can you just talk through what that looks like? And does it change? So, well, circadian rhythm is, is driven by darkness. Um, that's one thing that helps regulate it. But when they're born, their circadian rhythms are really immature. So that's why we have they get what we call night and day confusion, night day confusion. They sleep during the day, they sleep during the night, they don't know what's what, they don't know, they don't know what's up, what's down. So it takes time for that develop to develop and it kind of around four-ish months it starts to develop. But that doesn't necessarily mean that just because they turn four months that they know how to sleep. There are things that we can do to encourage melatonin production and to develop those circadian rhythms like taking them out in the sunlight in their awake time and then putting them in a dark room during their sleep time so those things develop over time and when it comes to sleep cycles they can be varying durations we all have sleep cycles as adults our sleep cycles are longer so but we still rouse through the night at the end of a sleep cycle and so does a baby so yeah I think they change over time and we can't expect that they will know how to sleep on their own, but we can definitely enhance those things. Some people even put foundations in in the hospital. Some people even bring in their white noise machines into the hospital and get things going there. I started at about five weeks, as I mentioned, to put in the foundations. And it's really, really common for babies to catnap because their sleep cycles are really, really short. And that their sleep's really immature, as I say. And when children go through what we call regressions, they're actually progressions. It means that we're progressing through developmental things. And usually those sleep regressions, four months, eight months, 12 months, two years, line up with big developmental milestones. So rolling, sitting, standing, talking, walking, that kind of thing. So, yeah. It's um, that regression is actually progression. I find that empowering in itself because sometimes when we look at the word, when we look at language, the word regression, it's a negative connotation and we're kind of like, oh, my baby's regressing, regressing. Whereas if we can take what you've said, that regression is actually progression, you can kind of flip that mindset a little bit to a more positive um, mindset that they're actually developing. So I think even just that, that is really powerful. And that's where I mean about sleep is not stagnant. It's not like we help our babies to sleep early on and then they're good to go. It's not like that because there's so much development that happens in that first three years from all the things that I've just mentioned, walking, talking, et cetera, to um, solids. So, under, you know, solids is so much, so many things that, that affect sleep. And then those other things that I also mentioned, so teething, illness, um, travel, all those things as well. So we can't, it's not, and that's why I think that's great if you can get a really quick result somewhere else or in another way. But like, and that's why I say sleep schools has worked for some people, but I also get the people that they've been twice and it hasn't worked. Mm. And there's many reasons for that. And I think, as I said, one, it's not a holistic model. Two, they have not given the parents skills, mm. which is what we want to do so that they can handle the next challenge that comes their way. Yeah, I love that. Um, and one thing I do hear a lot and is probably very common to new mums is that babies don't really have a routine until, I can't remember, it might have been three months or six months. So basically you just cater to whatever the baby's doing up until that age. Would that be more of a myth than a fact? Because like you've said, um, you can implement so many routines and strategies in place from you know even in the hospital so what would you say about that whole either myth or fact about that I definitely think that we are going with their cues when they're little bubbers we're definitely child-led in those early stages we're watching for tired signs if they're showing the red eyebrows or they're rubbing their eyes then we're definitely watching for those tired signs and following their lead feeding on demand feeding through the night all of those things however 
we can do some foundational things. We are trying to replicate the womb. And it's really important that we don't overextend our little ones or wait time so that we keep them because the last thing you want is overtiredness and new babies are so prone to overtiredness because their capacity to have a stimulating environment or their capacity to stay awake is just so small. And one of the biggest problems we have is that an awake time in the beginning is something like, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and 15 on where they sit. There's a lot that has to happen in that hour and 15. We have to feed them and breastfeeding. If you're breastfeeding, that takes a long time in the beginning. We need to change their nappy. We need to give them a little bit of playtime. There's so much that happens in that short amount of time, but we have to stick to them. So I always say baby leading that first sort of four months, but definitely being aware of the awake times. If you've got a new baby and they're awake for four hours, there's your recipe for disaster because when babies are overtired, they are harder to settle. So you might miss the next nap or you might eventually get them to sleep, but then they'll catnap because they're overtired. You might struggle at bedtime to get them to sleep and then they're going to wake frequently because they're overtired and then they're going to early rise. That's another symptom of overtiredness. Once we get to about four months, that's when I less so go on on tired signs unless they're unwell. We definitely follow their lead if they're unwell but I more so go on awake times because I find that parents are still going on tired signs and then they put their child down too early. And if you do that and they're undertired, then you'll also get a short nap. So I do, when it comes, I'm a real, real advocate for routine because one, I actually believe, well, children thrive on routine. They absolutely thrive. It's predictable for them. And the second thing is then you know as a mother, generally mother or father, what's what? Where are you going? What are you doing? So for me, I did this from pretty much day dot, but definitely five weeks old. I knew how much time I had to go to the shops and come back before I had to put him down for a nap. We went to Jimbaroo when he was tiny. So we went to Jimbaroo classes. I knew that I could put, had to put that class in his awake time and then I could put him in the car and he would fall asleep. For me, it actually gave me flexibility. If I was at an appointment and he was due for a nap, and I'm at an appointment, he's going to scream the house down. It's going to be so stressful and so anxiety-provoking, and then they feed off our anxiety. And as a highly anxious person, a routine was really great for me. But I think for, and I actually put that down to Reggie's calm demeanour. He's a very, very calm, relaxed boy, not much phases that kid. One is I think he has my husband's disposition that way but another thing is is the routine I've had him on from day dot so I think those things combined Mm. he's not an anxious child you tell him you know this play date was going to happen and now it's not he's like oh well we'll do it next time he's just not phased by stuff and I want to build and I have built resilience in him Mm. because there is disappointment in life and there is you know I want him to be able to be really independent and stand on his own two feet so routine to a degree is important um and I think obviously the people that I see the families that I see don't have a routine and things are just spot they've spiraled because they're so overtired they do things that they weren't necessarily planning to do so for example they might be co-sleeping but that's not what they wanted to do and co-sleeping if that works for you I usually don't see the people that want to co-sleep I see those that never wanted to were so sleep deprived bring the baby into the bed and then um now they're waking up 11 times a night or using the breast as the dummy, those kind of families. So that's where I come in and that's why I think that when things spiral out of control and it becomes a problem for the family, it becomes a problem for the parent, that's when it's okay to say, hey, I need help. Mm -hmm. I need help. This is not working for me. I need help. And I think even just having this space here for women to, to, to know it's okay to ask for help because this is something I deal with a lot of my clients is we think we have to go through all life's events and milestones alone. But if there's anyone listening that is struggling, please take this as permission that asking for help is is a sign of strength because you want the best for your baby. And sometimes we do live in a society where asking for help is kind of frowned upon. So I'm, I'm glad we've opened that space there. And look, proof is in the pudding because Reggie is the cutest little, most sociable little five-year-old, even myself. And I was with my best friend, Hayley. We're like, 
what an incredible young man. And I think that comes obviously down to what you're talking about, the the things you put in place, plus also your husband's demeanor, like what a mix to have both of them. Um, How important would you say sleep is for children's development in terms of like for when they are in that, you know, four, five, six-year-old bracket? Well, I usually deal with the younger ones, but I would definitely say that for all children, sleep, it's an essential building block because it's for their mental and physical health, just like for us. We need it for our mental and physical health. So they need it for rest, they need it for rejuvenation, and they actually consolidate their learning. So whether they're a baby and they're learning to grab something with their little hands or whether they're in kindergarten and they're learning the alphabet, it's the consolidation of learning that happens overnight or when they sleep. The other thing that it's really important for, and this is for adults as well, is the immune system. So sleep is actually has a regulatory effect on the immune system or it enhances the immune defence. So there's actually protein released during sleep called cytokines, which fight infection. And at the moment, I'm seeing so many sick people on Instagram, like babies, children, adults, yes, too. And I think to myself, well, that becomes a vicious cycle because if you're not well, you need rest. But if you originally already had sleep challenges and weren't sleeping age appropriately, good overnight, well overnight and good amounts of time, then that's also going to hinder the recovery of the illness. So sleep and the immune system are incredibly synergistic and work really closely together. And the other thing is for sleep and children and adults, (laughs) if you have to say and adults because it's for adults as well. It all applies, yeah. And there'll be people that are listening to this podcast that are not parents, I'm sure. So it's also important for our happiness, sleep as it is for performance. Mm. So I talk about increasing productivity in the home as well as outside of the home. So if we're dog tired, we are grumpy, we are moping around the house, we've got washing to do, we are trudging through the day as is when we have to go to work and be productive for our bosses. The same thing for mood. So that's obviously can be grumpy, as I explained, as a child can be grisly and grumpy. It actually, sleep actually helps resilience. So when we're talking about not that I cover usually that area, but four, five, six-year-olds, or they need their own resilience. So sleep will build resilience. As I mentioned, learning and memory. And in toddlers particularly, it consolidates their memory. So once they learn something at kindergarten or even school, it's the sleep. That's where the consolidation happens. And then, of course, motor skill development, which is very, very important in the early days, but even later on when they're trying to learn to catch balls and um you know, when the babies and they're trying to grab things and grab your hand and all that sort of stuff or walk, everything like that. So they're all the things that are affected by sleep and they're all the reasons why sleep is so pivotal to child development. Yeah, all of that is just so fascinating. And and as I said, that's why, you know, a credit to you and proof is in the pudding because Reggie just was such an incredible kid that I think like anyone that would meet him would say the same thing. Like, what is your secret? So I think hard work, hard work, exactly. Routine, hard work, long-term, um, long-term practices, I think is really important. So, um, you know, even when it comes to, to adults, because sleep is something we talk a lot about when adults are trying to improve their overall health and, you know, one big thing you mentioned there is their resilience. And especially as for anyone who might not be a mum yet or may not want to be a mum, sleep is just so pivotal for our emotional health because we go through this part of sleep, which is called REM sleep. And that's kind of like the emotional balm for, um, you know, it's almost like emotional therapy. So we can wake up and feel more resilient the next day. And that's actually where the saying sleep on it came from. So that's why even sleep for adults is just so imperative. So it kind of goes hand in hand. And that's why I love the work you do because, you know, it's it's about helping mums and, and dads sleep better as well as understanding the importance of children's sleep as well because they do, do go hand in hand. Well, that's interesting because I feel like the population these days or society these days think of sleep as a luxury yes and as a sleep consultant I would say it's not a luxury Mm -hmm. it's it's a necessity yeah so and particularly when they're talking about their own sleep I'm telling you it is amazing what parents put up with I had a mama contact me the other day and her family member had suggested to contact me a year ago Mm. so she has been encountering her little ones about two two and a half troublesome sleep with her little one for a year you know, I if I see something going on, the smallest thing, I just jump on it because, one, I guess I have lots of beautiful modalities that I can go to. 
But I couldn't endure that. And I really, hats off to those that do. But I guess one of the main messages is you don't have to. Yeah. You don't have to. And your sleep is, as a parent, your sleep is, and as any adult, your sleep is so, so important. You have to prioritise it. Mm-hmm. And I think for those people who don't have children, or those that do, it becomes really looking at your phone late at night um, or maybe having too much alcohol, which affects the quality of sleep that we have, and then being a parent, thinking that there are no solutions or if I go and ask for help with sleep work, then they're going to put my baby in a, in a room and let it cry on its own for hours and hours, which is not the case. And there's a lot of misconceptions about sleep work and there's a lot of, yeah, this 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 idea that it's or And there's also the idea, Laura, that, you either get a good sleeper or a bad sleeper. And that is just crap. That is such crap. They want to sleep. Babies have a made to sleep. Their biology is they are made to sleep. We just have to set up things optimally for that to happen. Same with adults where we are made to sleep. We want to sleep, but then there must be something getting in the way. So that's the other thing. You don't get a good sleeper and a bad sleeper. There's definitely things that can affect, you know, the sense every child is very different in terms of their sensitivity. Part of that might be from the childbirth that you had. Um, but we can, we can, I can get you good sleepers. <laughs> I can get yeah. good sleepers. There's also health conditions. There are a lot of children that I come across who have either had something altered. So they've got adenoids and tonsils or sleep apnea there's all those kind of things as well which can affect child sleep but ultimately we can all have great sleepers if we put in the work if we ask for help and if we prioritize it and isn't that just so empowering and again just to put it back on sort of language and mindset if we're constantly told to either have a good or bad sleeper pigeonhole black and white you know it it is that black and white thinking then if you get dealt with what people assume is a bad sleeper how's your mindset going to be every single night because you've it's a kind of pigeonholing you know that baby into bad sleep as a bad sleeper whereas I find that so empowering to know you can do something about it like there are strategies you can you can put I get really I get really upset and there's there's these really bold statements that sometimes parents say like um such and such decided they decided to stop sleeping and then we got to four months and they just decided to stop sleeping mm. or such and such is a bad sleeper such and such doesn't like sleep such and such hates the cot all these really big bold statements now the fact of the matter is they're giving their child too much credit because developmentally that's not possible and they don't hate sleep they want to sleep biologically they're wired to sleep something has happened that has thrown off sleep or perhaps we were going along really nicely in the early days because they're much more dozy and things like that and then they've hit a regression slash progression. So it's those statements are really, um, they're not accurate and I think that we can help everybody who who is in that case because, yeah, sleep is so important. It really is and, like, yeah. Anyone that knows me knows if I don't sleep well. We just went to Europe. This is a great example. Yeah. They don't have dinner until like 11 p.m. I know. That's <laughs> terrible. Incredible. My sleep was not great knowing I was eating so late at night, so I had to obviously shift my whole circadian rhythm for that time. But um, before we wrap up, there is a couple more things I do want to dive into. One is understanding the importance of nutrition and feeding and how does that sort of affect sleep? Well, uh, they work synergistically in my book. So part of part of the thing, let's say, for example, if we don't get enough sleep, let's say toddlers or don't get, um, yeah, if we don't get enough sleep or more so the spacing of the feeding. So let's say I often have parents that I say, okay, so, you know, Johnny goes to bed at 7 o'clock. What time do you do dinner? 6.30, mm-hmm. right? So by 6.30, Johnny's pretty tired. So we need to make sure that dinner is at a reasonable time where they can eat as much as they need to eat for their little bodies and for their development. Mm-hmm. So because when a child is tired, they are grouchy and they don't eat. One of the main complaints I get is my child, little Johnny, whoever, doesn't eat much. Oh, my child's a fussy eater. Oh, they just pick. After they've worked with me, they are eating an abundance because we've spaced the food to a time that they're not tired mm-hmm. and we use it in conjunction with food. And when they're little babies, they need full tummies of milk so that they can sleep for good durations. So there's many ways that feeding and sleep, I say, are synergistic. And, again, all of my clients don't quite have that 
nailed and I think that's maybe because again I don't think we're taught that and if you don't follow what we're saying before a routine and we're not following a routine in the beginning remember we're just feeding on demand but later on we can follow a bit more of a routine then we might be snack feeding for example so if baby gets grizzly some mothers might immediately pop them on the breast rather than thinking is that what the baby needs or is there something else going on putting them on the breast isn't always the solution it is sometimes but it would be better to get big full feeds than just snacking and another good example of that is overnight when parents have brought the child into the bed and they didn't plan to the baby is using the breast to get back to sleep constantly so they're snacking through the night so they're not getting full feeds and then they are actually having the majority of their calories overnight versus during the day which is when we want them to have the most of their calories during the day so there are many, many ways that those things are related, feeding and sleeping, and that's a big part of my work as well. I find that so fascinating. I don't even have a baby and I want to know so much about this. <laughs> I know. Well, those things we're not and talking about, I was like, I love, I love that. And that's how, you know, naturopathy works the same way and health, all those things work the same way with making sure one part of the body is functioning optimally and then the next part is as well because those parts are interrelated. And that's where the holistic things, all the nervous system is related to the immune system, which is related to the gut function. They're all related. And it's the same with sleep as well. Absolutely. And also one thing that I think would be really beneficial is to talk about, do you have set sort of boundaries or non-negotiables for like a nighttime routine? Like I know personally in my family, I try not to have too much technology at nighttime. We try and, you know, avoid that blue light coming through, Um, just boundaries I put up and look Bill tries really hard to adhere to them but is there any boundaries you sort of encourage parents to think about putting in place yes and I'm glad you brought that up because that's another big part of it is what we call the bedtime routine now because of my knowledge as a naturopath and certain areas of interest so I'm particularly interested in electromagnetic radiation so that's something that I don't think anyone else looks at and that comes into play with where they sleep what's nearby, are they doing TV before naps, are they using the iPad, et cetera. So because I'm dealing with children that are having current sleep challenges, yeah, I'm like no devices and I have a certain period of time that we're away from naps and we're also away from bedtime. To be honest, there's no need. I'm, as we mentioned just before coming, starting recording, I never did devices with Reggie only until we hit, I think, first or second year of lockdown where I'd start to introduce a little bit. Because there's actually no need. It occupies them. I do find it can be strategic. So let's say you've got two children and I have used television with parents who've got two children and we're working on the sleep of the younger one and they're the only parent there. We have to use it strategically so the four-year-old is occupied while the mum is in the room settling. Totally. But I guess mindless TV or TV in the background, it can be still stimulating and little babies can still be the light, the sound, Toddlers can be overstimulated by that. So, yeah, that's one of the things, knowing in the bedtime routine where the meals place or where dinner, because I start the bedtime routine for me starts at dinner. Yes, okay, we talk about the hour or hour and a half before bedtime, but it's actually the day preceding up to actually have a download on this because I'm so passionate about this. It doesn't, you don't do what you want from seven in the morning until five and then go, okay, guys, now, oh, my gosh, the baby hasn't had enough sleep. The baby hasn't had enough calories. They've been overstimulated. Now we're going to start trying winding them down. It actually begins for me at the beginning of the day. If you want to make sure that they're having enough calories through the entire day, we want to make sure the spacing of the food is optimal, yeah. um, that there is because child, children that come home from childcare are really overstimulated. So we want to make sure that we are winding them down in that one to two hours before bedtime. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I do have some... I don't know if they're non-negotiables, very much strong recommendations when I'm working with families one-on-one and they work. These things work in conjunction with all the other things that we've already mentioned. Yeah. And, you know, every, everything you're saying, I'm like, it's so similar to what we teach adults as well. Like it's, it's just crazy. The relationship from a baby and toddler to a human, there is so many transferable things that we still haven't 
perfected ourselves as adults. So a lot of transferable things there. Um, And lastly, before we wrap up, we have spoken a lot about the development, some routines. Self-care for parents is a big one. We're not having enough time in the day to look after ourselves. We're in survival mode. This is a really common theme I do see with mums. What would your best advice be? Because I know you spoke a lot about routines before. What would your best advice be for both mums and dads to make sure they get enough time in their day, even if it's just like a little 10 minutes to give back to themselves so they don't lose themselves. Interesting. I also have a download about that because I'm very passionate about that and I encourage parents to reframe this Mm -hmm. because remembering in my situation that we've talked about, I had no one to take the baby. I remember one time he, because he had really bad wind, he was screaming the house down and I just wanted to call the maternal child health nurse to say, what is wrong? I could not even make a phone call because I have no one. It's just me. So I reframed that with him and I talk about in this particular download and I talk about with clients about self, so finding pockets of time when the baby's actually in your presence as well as when you can maybe step away from the home. So, for example, every uh, day, nearly for six months, the third nap is usually a motion nap. For many reasons. So for him, I was either on the football with him in the carrier and I was watching reruns of crime shows. Yep. Or we were out and about walking our dog, Bonnie Dog. Um, and he's in the thing, he's asleep, he's safe. So I am actually finishing a thought that I had three hours ago and haven't had to finish. All these days you might listen to a podcast as long as you can hear them if they wake up and cry. So you can have self-care while they're in your presence. But one of the ways to get that is to have a baby that sleeps adequately for their age so that's one part of it the other part is well I guess also in that so if they are sleeping in the home then you can have a cup of tea you can have a hot shower uninterrupted that's like heaven um you might watch you watch a lot of tv I reckon when you're on your own when they're sleeping when they get to much older like I don't even watch tv now I don't have time and they're not sleeping you know what I mean so watching crappy tv if that fills your cup calling a friend, calling a family member, saying I'm having a really crap day, that kind of thing. I used to drive a lot. So I would drive like to the osteo, that was an hour, and then he, I'd get him, he'd be asleep and then I would listen to a podcast on the way back. Mm-hmm. So that Filling My Cup podcast really did that because I would listen to business podcasts. I would listen to parenting. I actually learned a lot of my parenting stuff from parenting podcasts that I resonated with. So I actually had, and then, yeah, so they were the main kind of podcasts I used to listen to, so whatever floats your boat in terms of what people are interested in. Um, making sure that we prioritise our sleep is basically the best self-care, and that is sleeping when the baby sleeps. People are like, oh, how could I do that? How could I possibly do that when, you know, particularly with one child, it's obviously a lot easier, but you have to. A couple of times a week, I was never a napper until I was pregnant, and then I'd nap a bit because you're so tired when you're pregnant, but then with him... I would force myself a couple of times a week and it would only be 20 minutes and then I was refreshed and I could get through the day till hubby came home. And the same goes for maybe if you've got multiple children, you can't do that. Maybe you take yourself to bed at nine o'clock. You know, maybe you say to husband, you know, hubby, you're in charge. I, I will breastfeed. I'll express the feed and you need to do the night. I need to go to bed earlier. It's really about prioritizing those things. And when it comes to stepping away, I think that comes down to if you have a partner, it's a bit a lot about communication mm-hmm. and letting them know that you need a break. I remember I think Reggie was like a week old and my husband said, you need to go for a walk. I just walked around the block with my dog. That's all I did. But I because it's so all-consuming, the feeding, the nappies, the feeding, the nappies, the sleep. It's just all-consuming. You have to get out and get out, get out and about. So making sure I also learned to trust a couple of people. So his sister mm-hmm. who we weren't necessarily close before and she does things different to me, but I learned to trust her and another friend of my husband's who's in her 50s. I had to trust these two women because I had no one because my friends have their own babies. Like they don't, you know, I needed someone who could focus on him. So if there's someone that you can trust, I also met a lot of people through a group. There's particular groups and apps that you can meet. I met a lot of girls in my community because I didn't really know that many when I had him. And if you feel willing maybe there'll be a time that you'll do a swapsy and someone will come over and look at look after your little one and then vice versa obviously you want to build that friendship before you do that (laughs) but there are many many ways that you can and 
even like you said, it literally will be five minutes. It literally will be 10 minutes. And dads too. My best girlfriend and I, we talk about this. Our husbands are terrible at prioritising themselves. My husband works and he's in the home. He, he He's not good. He doesn't really play sport and all that sort of thing. So occasionally he'll go into the gym. But they need to do it as well because they've got, my husband runs his own business. It's really stressful. He's got staff. A lot of the 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 males in the relationships that I work with, they often tradies, they get up in the morning, they go, they come home at three and then they're on. They're parenting for the next few hours. So it's just about prioritising and maybe looking out for our partners and saying, hey, I think you need a break. I'll take the kids. I think that's brilliant. And, you know, even just going back to the importance of sleep, because I do hear that a lot. I just can't sleep when my baby's sleeping. I couldn't think of napping throughout the day. But a brilliant book by, um, I think it's Matthew Walker. Um, I love sleep, by the way, if you can't tell. Um, <laughs> but he, he talks about the importance of even having a nap up to 90 minutes can be so beneficial because yeah. you go through all the stages of sleep. Whereas a nap doesn't mean two to three hours because you can actually no. wake up groggier. So any anywhere up to that, you know, 20 to 30 minute mark can be really beneficial. So and it's all- rebooting. For if you've had a terrible day or a challenging morning as a parent and you've been struggling with every single little thing, it just, it builds resilience is what it does. You wake up and you go, oh, I can get through for the next three hours. It builds resilience. And it comes down to that saying, sleep on it and then make the decision afterwards. So yeah. you know, there's there's facts and science to back this up. But before we finish up, can you just talk us through what program you currently run and where can we find you? Yes. Well, I would love all your listeners to follow me on Instagram. The Holistic Sleep Project is me at Instagram. You can head to my website, www theholisticsleepproject.com. So I do one-on-one clients and that's with bigger packages, that's with phone consults, one-hour consults, all that kind of thing. That's probably the biggest thing that I do because most people have a unique situation and they want that. They want me to hold their hand and at the end of it they have a baby that sleeps beautifully age appropriately. But I also have a membership, the Sleep Collective. They can jump on the wait list at the moment because it only opens a couple of times a year. The goal there is to get independent sleep. It's a five-stage program membership, but you also get online support. So I'm just going to, once I finish with you, I'm going to get on and do a live call with the members because they've always got questions about what's going on. So they can contact me on the Facebook group whenever they want. We have weekly lives. I've just released my first course, the Holistic Baby and Toddler Sleep Course. So that's more so if you want a bit of a self-paced option. Like some people get really overwhelmed by joining memberships or knowing they have to be in a live every week. Not that my membership's like that. My membership's pretty chill. <laughs> but a lot of people do feel like that. So the course is self-paced and it meets, it, it deals with every sleep challenge that comes your way. So regressions, nap transitions, wanting a bit more independent sleep but wanting to do it gradually, teething there's medical conditions stuff in there it's absolutely everything and it's lifetime access so for this child that someone has now and then moving forward and there's also webinars online I've got webinars for at a cheaper fee and also downloads so there's something for everyone no matter where people are and yeah I'd love to hear from them they can head over to insta and chat to me we'll definitely tag you in our post but I just wanted to say massive Thank you for joining us. Just even hearing your story, I know is such a big takeaway and so inspiring for women just to give them that empowerment that they can get through whatever their hard or challenges at the moment. Our co-host, Felicia, who is actually on mat leave at the moment. So she's, I think, week 11 now, mm-hmm. um, postpartum. And I know she'll be cursing that as she missed <laughs> this, but she is busy with her little... Hello, Diana. Do you want to hear yeah. going? So I have no doubts that she's going to find this amazing. And, um, yeah, the, the last thing is I know how excited I am for when Bill and I want to start having kids. I am going to be contacting <laughs> you because even just a funny story going through getting our puppy and we got into a bad habit because he broke his leg to sleeping in our bed. So we had to transition <laughs> him from not sleeping in our bed to sleeping in his crate downstairs. And let me tell you, that was the hardest six days of my life mm. when we decided not enough is enough. That first three days, he cried until 4 a.m. And I sat there like so humbled and in awe of my my mummy um, women in the group. Like it just gave me such you women are incredible what you have dealt with as a mom and looking after a human. And this was a dog. It only took six days. 
but it was. It was you're really- good because we didn't even do that. Bonnie was always an outdoor dog until kind of before we had Reggie, and we said she cannot be in the same. She's a tiny little Jack Russell cross foxy, but we were like, we're having a baby, we can't have her in here. We tried to get her back outside, and she just stood at the dog and wh- the door and whined. So we're like, oh, it's too hard. <laughs> So we just can't, obviously, as babies, I absolutely kept them separately because you can never trust an animal with a baby. Yeah. But just on your position, I would say when that time is right, and for anyone listening, it's just about being proactive. And this is what, when I hear things like, oh, you can't prepare for having a baby or um, I'll just wait to see what happens, all that sort of thing. I think really, like, I don't want to educate yourself a bit or have a plan. You may, you may deviate from the plan. But whatever you might do, some research about a few different ways that you might, whether you want to co-sleep, um, whether you want to do more independent naps, whatever it is. So doing research and being on the front foot yeah. and being, and that goes for feeding as well. You might have a lactation consultant booked. I had one booked. I didn't need her, but I had it booked just in case. Mm-hmm. Being proactive around sleep and around babies, I reckon, is dynamite. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And, and Bill already knows that I would be like, as soon as I'm ready to prepare to be a year out and then I'll yeah. be doing all my education, all my courses. Yeah. So That's Bill, if you're listening, FYI, we'll be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for all your time, wisdom, education. It has been such a beautiful chat. Is there anything else you want to say before we, before we uh, finish up? What an honour. It has been such a great chat. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I hope yeah. it's helped all your listeners who are thinking about getting pregnant or who have sleep current sleep problems, there's help out there and I'd love to help anyone that is in need of it. But thank you for having me. It's been great. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time and I can't wait for everyone to listen to this episode. But until then, we will chat to you next week. Bye.